Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods from UT Southwestern. Today, Jacob is going to talk about something brilliant in pop and culture, I'm sure. Then we're going to move to the academic deep dive segment where we're going to discuss the academic article, Expressive Writing and Marital Satisfaction, a writing sample analysis, which is something very fascinating and a research method we haven't really ever talked about here. And in Good or Bad Advice, we're going to talk about an article one of my students actually recommended called Six Healthy Relationship Habits That Most People Think Are Toxic by Mark Manson. As always, if you have advice that you want us to talk about, send us an email, attachpodcast at gmail.com. Give us a call and leave us a message, 865-229-6775. Tweet us at Attached Podcast, or go to attachpodcast.com and send us a message. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. You guys, we're everywhere. But before we get to all of that goodness this week, how is everybody doing? Uh, in Iowa, well, in my house at least, we are nesting a lot. We have uh, almost got Getting the nursery all set up. Yay! Oh my gosh. Wait, how, many, how far along are you? Uh, six months. Wow. I mean, that's that's dedication to being a new parent. I'm pretty sure I didn't have any of that worked. That's amazing. Well, Congratulations. It also just works like, because uh, Chelsea's finishing off her graduate program this semester. So like by the end of the semester, when she's like Crazy. eight months Super pregnant, tired. graduating, yeah. has a lot going on, we figured we'd front load it a little bit. But Smart. Smart. Uh, no, this is, I mean, this is smart. These are, these are the things that yeah. um, good, intelligent parents do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think I can qualify myself yet as a good or intelligent parent yet, as I am not one yet. But um, we, so we also just decided to rearrange our bedroom as well, just because, um, uh, you know, while we're nesting, we might as well change it. And yeah. I don't know yeah. if you know anything about me, but... I'm not very handy. That comes <laughs> as no surprise. But so our house was built in 1919. So it's 100 years old. So like our bedroom's upstairs and it's got some funky roof lines. So we wanted to move our uh, headboard, but that required me to cut it. So what? let me tell you this story. What? Uh, I'm upstairs <sighs> working with this handsaw for like an hour and a half, and we're about to go somewhere. And uh, <laughs> I'm just worried this is going to end with Jacob at the hospital, no, no, but no, go no, on. No. Um, and so I kind of wrap up. I go downstairs, and Chelsea's like, oh, well, before we go, let's see what you were doing up there. She goes upstairs. <laughs> And she just starts laughing. She's like, I've heard you like swearing and moving stuff around. And it looks like absolutely no difference. <laughs> so Aww. I broke down and I bought my very first power tool at the ripe Yay. old age of 38. And then, I mean, that's... and then I actually had the right tool and I finished it off in 20 minutes, two days later. So, you know, just look at you. Just getting, getting so Manly? Jacob parenting? <laughs> I don't know. I don't Jacob know. Jacob handyman priest over exactly. here. <laughs> I called myself Tim the Toolman Taylor 
And, oh, dear. Uh, Yikes. Uh, Yikes. Well, if you remember that show, he's pretty inept with stuff, so it kind of fit. <laughs> yeah, good point. Woods, what you been up to? Well, last week um, we had family in town. It's uh, winter break for people who live in the Northeast. I don't know how universal that is, but um, it's something I grew up with and then um, they still do that. Uh, So my brother and his girlfriend and my two nephews came down to visit for a week and it was fantastic. Yeah, we um, spent a night at... A Great Wolf Lodge. I don't. I think that's something that exists in other places. I don't know. If yes. Have one of those. Yes. They. They are. They are popular in the Midwest. Ah. Okay. Um. Well, I hadn't done it before. They had with their kids, and they uh, thought it would be fun, and it was. Uh, it's like got a huge indoor water park, so it's got um, a lot of water slides, which everyone found enjoyable, except me. They were, oh, no. they were terrifying. <laughs> they, were, they were so freaking scary. So because you ride all of the slides in tubes, usually like in tubes for two, I could never have done it solo. Um, but then the way we, the way we divided off, I ended up many times riding these slides with my brother's girlfriend which is a very intimate way to get to know somebody very quickly to be like (laughs) cursing at the back of their head screaming about how you're definitely not going to survive it um uh, so i would send like my six-year-old um with my six-year-old nephew down a water slide thinking like i hope you guys make it and then just go down the other water slide just screaming it was horrifying this family friendly adventure i mean this place was all small children and their parents and nobody seemed that scared um, it was it was very intense so but lots of fun we had a good week. <laughs> yeah. Super scary. But no, no, no. Yes. Was a lot of fun. Yeah. I feel like I burned a lot of calories just from like the fear all day long of this experience. <laughs> but it was good. The kids Funny. enjoyed themselves. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, the most important part. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I have been on an epic uh, cheese making journey for probably the past six months. We know yes. this. Um, I had a backlog of about five gallons of milk as one does so as one does as one does um so i decided to make five gallons worth of cream cheese yes yes (laughs) i have so much cream cheese yay so much cream cheese it's frozen in my freezer obviously it's a good place for it to be frozen um it it's just a amazing amount of cream cheese and um i don't know if i'll ever get through it but you know if anybody has any recipes that require large amounts of cream cheese please send them to me like couldn't you sell them like at a local bagel store i mean i feel like you could be like cheese with patricia and just you know cheesy patricia no dot org cheese with patricia She's with Patricia. Like, yes, 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 I figure, yes. like, on it, you just have, like, you holding a block of cheese smiling. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, I like your marketing idea and your branding idea. Um, the problem is, is it really needs to be um, workshopped a little bit. That. <laughs> you, you think, well, I always try to be nice. Um, 
uh, it's um, raw milk, so it's not oh. like I could just like go sell it on the the. I could sell it on the black market, but mm. I don't really feel like that's something I should be saying on a public podcast no, if I do that. Not. So also, like, are you? Would you walk into like a local bagel place and see a lady with a few blocks of cream cheese and be like, "I'm definitely going to buy this from you," let alone if it was called cheese with Patricia? Like your setup is. It, fe- it makes me scared that you would walk in and buy something like that. <laughs> and then with your power tools, oh. it would just be the end. It would be the end of Jacob. I feel <laughs> Jacob eating cheese off a stranger um, and with power tools. Yeah. It's the, the downfall. End. Well, it's the end. I also like how you phrase that eating cheese off of a stranger. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's what I was talking about, oh. but. Oh. <laughs> I see what you did there. Fair point. Fair point. Oh, mercy. You guys ready to move on? Let's do it. I mean, not really, though, actually. I would really <laughs> like to continue to play that out, but but sure. But do our listeners want it? That's the question. First up, poppin' culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and family. But a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. So for this first segment, we like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Jacob, what do you have for us this week? All right. Well, this is going to get a little bit in the weeds for these uh, non-reality television show fans out there. Oh, mercy. But So, so Sarah and me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so currently in our house, we are watching two reality television shows simultaneously. Wow. The Bachelor, which we have talked about. Pilot Pete. Pilot Pete. And also we are watching Love Island UK, which this is their first winter season that they've done, even though it's like season six of Love Island in, in the UK. How the do se- they wear bikinis in the winter? Well, they're in South Africa, so it works out. <laughs> Wait, why does it matter that it's winter? Like, when you say winter season. Well, because they typically just do one season a year, but now they're upping oh. it to two. Oh, it's so that popular. Of, yeah, I'm actually, really it's, yeah. it's really popular in the UK. It, it's huge. Anyway, like, watching these two uh, simultaneously has really made me think about uh, why I like one more than the other. Now, okay. I am a huge fan of The Bachelor, but I have become more and more of a fan of Love Island. And let me tell you why. First off, there's no pressure to marry. Right. Most reality television shows based around relationships in the United States are all about getting married. Which, if you're really about finding everlasting love, putting a timeline on something like marriage, I think is super problematic. Right, and also kind of shows this cultural fetish, fetishism, fetish, what is the word? Yeah, fetishism. That works for me. Fetishism of marriage in particular, which I don't necessarily understand. Yeah, because so on this most recent season of Love Island UK, one of the, I was going to call it characters, but I guess I should call it contestants. Her name is Shanice. <laughs> She's talking to another contestant about like her plans for the future and the contestant asked Shanice well would you like to be married soon and she's like you know um 
I could, you know, I could wait a little while before I get married. I mean, I'd like to have kids more recently, and I think it'd be really fun to have, like, you know, my kids at my wedding with me, which shows the flexibility in the narrative around right. marriage, kids, that maybe here, especially in a reality television series, we don't have. Second, um, both... Uh, both shows try to stir up drama. Like, if you're not watching reality television for the drama, why are you watching reality television? But one <laughs> of the point. things I like about Love Island UK is they actually try to use the drama as a way to get um, people to talk better through conflict. So, Interesting. Um, you know, I mean, part of it is kind of shitty. So they'll, like, throw... <laughs> Um, they'll just have a contest. Yeah. Just, hey. just part. <laughs> they'll throw out like, uh, they'll have like an activity in Love Island UK where like headlines from the tabloids will be played out. And so then the couple will hear like, oh, well, this is what people in the UK are thinking about you. Let's talk about it. And that happened with this same contestant I was talking about, Shanice, um, and the person she's coupled up with. And now, spoiler alert, they are officially boyfriend, girlfriend. Oh my. Whoa. Um, they actually go through one of these activities and she, they, there's some conflict because some of the things that are said, and I won't give that away either, but, um, they are actually there and they show how to model, um, really good conflict resolution. They talk through it. Okay. I'll give you the example. So Shanice and Luke T they actually get to go to the hideaway, which is the place where they get separated from all the other islanders and they get to spend the night together. And the next day, Luke T <laughs> tells Luke the T. other... Yeah, because there's there's multiple there's six, Lukes. There's six Lukes, yeah. <laughs> Luke T tells the other guys in the villa, which they call it, um, about what happened in the hideaway. And so in this activity, what they do, the tabloids say... Luke T tells boys about what happened in Hideaway with Shanice. And of course, Shanice is like, you did what? Which is really kind of funny because uh, everybody on national television saw what happened in, sure. in the Hideaway. Right, but, there's no actual privacy. Yeah, it was, they, they actually went and had a conversation where she laid out while she was upset and he really heard and listened and said, hey, I get that. I will make sure that there's a boundary between the rest of the people in the villa and what happens between us. So the next time they get a little bit of alone time, he respects that boundary and doesn't give in to anything that they want. Magical. Unlike, you know, on a few episodes ago, we talked about the drama triangle that is right. so much going on in Pilot Pete's The Bachelor. Oh, Pilot um, It really doesn't... And and the other thing I don't like about The Bachelor is all of the dates on The Bachelor are fanciful, right? You're not going to be able to go to a private concert and then, you know, have your own place in a restaurant, walk out and see fireworks every time you go on a date with somebody. But in Love Island, they do stuff like, hey, well, we're going to go have dinner and a picnic at this really nice scene, which is a lot more accessible to people and reflects more of the real world. Yeah, and also based purely on your description of each show, because I have not watched them, it sounds like The Bachelor also kind of adheres a lot 
more to gender stereotypes than Love Island. Yeah, does. yeah, like there's still, I mean, Love Island, there's still the expectation that, you know, if they decide that they are going to be a real couple outside of the villa, they will, um, the guy typically asks the woman to do that. But um, yeah, you know, like when they go through the coupling up process, both men and women get a choice. I mean, it's still super heteronormative. I mean, that's a knock on both of them, Very but true. that's that's a discussion for another podcast. Anyway, so if you want to actually have a semi-realistic vision or learn good principles about relationships, I would recommend Love Island over The Bachelor. Uh, I'm just saying. Here I is mean, your the official lessons that we can learn from pop culture through the eyes of Jacob Priest. I mean, cool. I'm here for it. Yeah, I'm glad. Love Island all the way. Now we're going to move to the academic deep dive segment and talk about an article titled Expressive Writing and Marital Satisfaction, a Writing Sample Analysis. Recently published in the Journal of Family Relations, this team out of Utah State University, Dr. Scott Allgood, Dr. Ryan Seedall, and Rachel Williams explored associations between spouses writing and the quality of their relationship. So before we break down this specific research, why a study on expressive writing? Very fascinating. Well, we know that writing is one way to express thoughts and feelings and provides a window into who people are and how they process things generally. Expressive writing is a more therapeutic process of using writing as these authors explain, quote, to express profound thoughts and emotions in a meaningful way, and also explore deeply personal experiences. This type of writing can help people to process things that are harder to talk about, and research shows it can actually promote mental and physical health two things that we're very, very passionate about here as well. So it helps people to become more self-aware, to use healthy coping skills, and to think more clearly. And expressive writing is cheap. It literally costs what a pencil and a piece of paper. So it's sometimes a helpful addition to psychotherapy for additional processing outside of a session that doesn't cost people anything. But these researchers point out most of the research on the effects of expressive writing has focused on individuals rather than whether it might promote the quality of a relationship. What few studies have done suggests that the use of expressive writing, specifically focusing on the relationship, may be associated with the use of more emotional language and texting and relationship longevity, and also relationship satisfaction among military couples. However, the authors of this study point out that prior research has been limited by focusing on either college-aged couples or very specific singular aspects of writing. I'm really excited and fascinated about this. So Sarah, how did these authors test connections between expressive writing and relationship satisfaction? So they wanted to look at a few indicators of the relationship within partners writing and they suggested that first it might be helpful to look at partners use of first 
person plural pronouns, which would be like we, us, Mm, our, ours, versus first person singular pronouns, like I or myself, right? Right. Um, And they suggest that it's a potential indicator of the cognitive room that partners give each other. Mm -hmm. So drawing on the work of John Gottman, they talk about what people know about their partner's psychological world and how they position their relationship on this continuum of myself or individual versus togetherness and entirely overlapping might be indicated by how often they're using this first person plural pronoun language Mm. um, to indicate how they're thinking about how together and close they are. Well, that makes sense. The the words that you use reflect how you think. That makes perfect sense. And the second piece that they thought would be important to focus on would be the use of affective language. So emotional words that might connote the emotional tone of a relationship, so how positive the language is versus how negative the language is. So what these researchers did, they invited 78 heterosexual and non-distressed married couples. So these okay. are not couples in therapy. These are just, say, off the street. They recruited them a little more intentionally than that. But <laughs> Come into my um, lab. Come into uh, my lab. Write something. Well, a little bit. They did some snowball sampling. So they oh. actually asked their first participants to do what you just did to their friends. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> follow, follow me. Um, follow me so if you want to they write were, about your relationship. That's right. They are going to pay us for this. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're an average, like, 39 years old. They've been married an average of 16 years. They have an average two and a half children. Um, they're well, that also, half child is always so wild. Well, uh, it, it's it's occurring more often in this sample than usual. But hey, some of also, us have half a child right now. <laughs> that's right. okay. Aww, that's, what that's, that's right. Cute. Yeah, it's aw. Totally not scientific. Um, so they're they're mostly white. They're also very highly educated. Mostly Christian. Okay. Also important caveats to be thinking about. They were offered the opportunity to complete the study either through writing by hand or to be typing on a computer, whichever they felt most comfortable with. And all of them chose to complete the study online using a computer. They were instructed to write either in separate rooms or at separate times. So they were not going to do this expressive writing together. And they were to write for about 15-20 minutes about something that they feel strongly about in their marital relationship. The prompt included language inviting the partners to really let go and explore thoughts, feelings, and experiences. Interesting. That's, that's very interesting, that word strongly, because it could be yes. either a negative problem or something positive sure. that they really like. So they were yep. free to talk about something positive that's right. or negative. Oh, that's like right. That. Yep. That was intentional. So it's it's a neutral prompt that is asking about the intensity of the event, prompting the intensity, but yes, not the balance, positive or negative. And then they self-report their relationship satisfaction as well. And the researchers analyzed all the participants writing using a word analysis program called Linguistic Inquiry and Word Count, which I had not heard about before. Cool. But it categorizes these words into different domains as well as counts the percentage of words in each of those categories. So these researchers, because their question was about personal pronouns and affective processes, those are the categories of words that they especially looked at. So first person plural versus first person singular, and then the use of negative or positive emotion words like love and nice versus hurt and worried, etc. And then 
then they looked at this data, how this language in this expressive writing for partners, they looked at this dyadically. Mm. Uh, so not only how each person's writing connected to their own relationship satisfaction, but also how each person's partner's writing might be associated. I love that. I always love some actor partner interdependence modeling, some of that sweet, sweet APIM. Yeah. It's a statistical <laughs> yes. method. Uh, do people yes. not refer to it as the sweet, sweet APIM? No, Is that just they me? Do. Is that probably just me? Just yeah. <laughs> no. Peer, the peer reviewers usually, I think, uh, request that you remove it, but our first draft <laughs> always sweet, sweet includes always sweet, 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 right. sweet APIM. It is considered the gold standard of data when looking at couple research, right? The way I think about my relationship impacting the way I feel later is one thing, but I'm not the only individual in my relationship. It's really powerful and important to also consider the partner's opinion and how the partner's opinion influences the partner. My partner's opinion influences my health outcomes or whatever it may be and also how my opinions or actions influence my partner as well at the same time so the other piece about that is that you're you're estimating all those effects for the individual person and across partners at the same time so you're capturing that mutual influence which is great because they had this couple level data to be able to do that and could provide maybe some better insight about how how that looks relational right so what they found was that people who used more we words, so more of those plural pronouns, reported that they themselves had greater marital satisfaction. There were no partner effects. Interesting. Yeah. So how frequently my partner used things like our or we in their writing was not associated with how satisfied I was. And the first, the use of the first person singular was not significantly associated with either person's marital satisfaction. So you could say I all day long, not associated. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think all day long was a, <laughs> a, a was way they quantified it. T- 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 right? yeah. <laughs> the, the frequency of that. And then they found uh, also that the more positive language that occurred in the writing samples, the greater my marital satisfaction was, but again, no partner effects. So you'd referenced earlier, Patricia, that this prompt was neutral. So right. they were not told to write about something negative or positive but the more often I used emotional words that were positive the more likely I was satisfied I think it's interesting this positive and negative and plural first person and singular first person I can see how there might be an interaction effect there so if you're talking about Uh something negative in your relationship and you're saying I I I versus owning Mm -hmm. it and we 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 would be a lot Mm -hmm. different than something positive in your relationship Mm -hmm. and saying I I I am owning all this positivity versus we are doing this positivity. So I could easily see how these effects might be different if we look at it within that context of positive and negative and plural and singular first person. I love it. I see that in my own relationships. So so that definitely makes sense to me. If you're going to use we to claim we both have this problem, please also use we when things are going well. Uh, Yeah, that makes sense to me. Or this problem is not a we thing. This is a you thing. So can you please pull it together? I invite you to use I. (laughs) So the use of negative language was not significantly associated with marital satisfaction until they broke it down by category. So they pulled out categories of kinds of negative language like worry and sadness and anger. And the more a person used language in their writing that reflected anger, that effect was significantly associated with their own marital satisfaction such that they reported less, they were less satisfied. And again, this is a collection of non 
distressed couples. So anger showing up in a neutral writing activity is interesting anyways, because I'm not sure how often it showed up across the sample, but you would imagine it wouldn't show up that much but when it does it's associated with my own feelings about the relationship so i mean there's an important a really really important limitation of this paper is that it's cross-sectional mm. so we do not know whether how they wrote was associated or a predictor of their relationship satisfaction it could very easily be the reverse and right um, probably that direction makes more sense in terms of if i'm happy in my relationship or am I, if I'm satisfied in my relationship, the more likely I am to speak positively about it and the more likely I am to use language that might reflect how together mm. and we, I feel. And the there was, no, there was no partner effects in any of these models that they tested, which I also think is really interesting. So my language predicts my satisfaction. It doesn't predict your satisfaction and your language doesn't predict my satisfaction. So even though their initial intent that you talked about, Patricia, was to look at this relationally, what they still found within these dyads, within these couples, really interesting individual effects. Right. I'm just saying uh, there are no partner effects cross-sectionally, right, in that moment. Yes. But we don't know necessarily mm-hmm. if that the language you use doesn't have further reaching effects. Sure. In, in the relationship, but but we also don't know if that's the causal relationship. We don't know yep. that if we encourage couples in therapy to use more we language, if that would actually mm-hmm. improve their long-term relationship satisfaction, sure. uh, you yeah. know, according to this study. I mean, I think that is a, an interesting question of a takeaway is this, although we don't know the direction of effect, they're suggesting affective language might reflect the emotional tone of relationships. So is it possible to right, fake it until right. you make it? Um, so could you, through writing or otherwise, kind of force the scenario of talking about positive events and positive experiences in your relationship? And could it have a reverse effect yeah. where it boosts your relationship satisfaction your feelings of connection can it buffer against stress that's going on because if you think about sometimes um when we first get distressed couples into therapy we ask them questions about how did you all meet and what are things that are going well in your life that you don't want therapy to interfere with and tell me about what you were successful in in the last week we ask questions that are really intentional about capturing the positivity in the relationship to know them more completely than their distress and to help buffer against some of the really hard work you're going to do in therapy i'm not sure based on the fact that we don't this wasn't an intervention study if if there would be any benefits of faking until you make it but i think it probably isn't something that would hurt right there's little risk it seems in right. um, thinking about intentionally talking about positive experiences in your relationship and maybe as you suggested Patricia using more we language to promote this feeling of togetherness the authors make some points about how this kind of expressive writing task could be used clinically for couples who are in therapy I don't know that it requires being in therapy to be writing this is a really cheap very free type of intervention right. and so I just was thinking that it it could be a helpful thing for couples to do is to process some of their relationship via expressive writing, whether it's a positive experience to remember and kind of enhance that positivity or to process something that hasn't gone well. So you get to do some of that deep thinking about your own experience before bringing that conversation back to your partner to give yourself maybe an opportunity to be more regulated or to think through your own experience or even your partner's experience that of that negative kind of maybe conflict or argument, disagreement, et cetera. And then maybe share some of those pieces with your partner over time. 
Yeah, no, I would totally agree. I have to provide a few caveats before I jump in and talk about this paper though. Well, first off, I have met the first author and I've known the second author, Ryan Seedall, for a really long time. He's just a really great dude. I was sitting in a coffee shop working across from Chelsea this morning, reading this article in preparation for today. And I looked at the, the name of the third author. I was like, Rachel B. Williams. I know that name from somewhere. No, it can't be. So I look over to Chelsea. I was like, Chelsea, do a Google search for Rachel B. Williams, Utah State. She's like, okay. Oh, uh -huh. so this is actually Rachel's master's thesis work turned mm -hmm. into a publication. I was like, mm -hmm. it can't be. It can't be the same person. Rachel and I dated in college. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> yeah. oh, how funny. Which is amazing because I didn't know. I know when we when we were dating, she Shut was talking up. about going to get a master's degree in family therapy, but I never knew she did. So I was like, this is really cool. We're talking about Rachel's uh, thesis oh, on the funny. podcast. Yeah, it was really funny. She was like, how much how much writing did you do in that relationship? Though? No, that's all the listeners. No, <laughs> zero. And that's the problem. No expressive zero, writing. Zero. That's the Nothing. problem. Well, so. Um, I had a couple of takeaways because I actually did start reading the thesis after this just because I thought I wanted to get a little bit oh more detail. Gosh. So as you sure. mentioned in the method section, it was 94% Christian, right? But it was actually uh -huh. closer to 90% Mormon. So yeah. I think too, the cultural piece of that too is Mormon families and especially Mormon couples tend to have more of a sense of connection and unity. That's very much reinforced mm -hmm. by a culture of their I messages mm -hmm. wouldn't be looked on as something that would be necessarily as healthy or rewarded. So I think that that's an important mm -hmm. caveat. But I also thought, and kind of piggybacking off what you said, Sarah, is that this balance between we language and I language, I think is important. I would wonder too, if they had sufficient data to look at the ratio between we and I, and if that was indicative of something mm -hmm. else. And I also thought that this could really fit into more of a narrative therapy type perspective, because oh, in, in that mm -hmm. idea, it seems to explain the results pretty well to me. Can you explain what narrative therapy is? So quick? narrative therapy is kind of in a very quick, <laughs> quick takedown yes. is the idea that we use language to construct our world. And we construct through this language and through the interactions we have through language with people, narratives about who we are and narratives about our relationship, right? right? So if you're in a healthy relationship, the narrative that you're going to construct around it would make a lot of sense to me to use language like we or mm -hmm. us, because I'm asking to write about my relationship. And in that relationship, the dominant narrative is that we are together that we are something that, you know, people that spend time together. And also that, you know, effective language, right? That same idea too, that we're gonna write about things that are positive, that are happy, because in the narrative that we've constructed about our relationship, we have focused on, we've pulled the strings of those things that we see as good, as, as happy, and we use that as the dominant narrative, which then reinforces this idea of, yes, we're satisfied in our relationship, and yes, we may go on more dates frequently or, or whatever the outcome might be. So I really appreciated first that in a thesis work, Rachel mm -hmm. recruited couples and did an APIM modeling. Yeah. I mean, that's a really awesome thesis yeah. work too. Mm -hmm. But I also appreciated the, like you were both talking about, the accessibility of these findings, right? I mean, with all those caveats that you all have presented, we don't really know longitudinally, like across time, how this potentially right. can make a difference. But it is a way, and, and Sarah, you were kind of alluding to some of the work of John Gottman too, when we ask people how they met, his research indicates that the narrative or story they tell around how they met 
is indicative of how quality of their relationship of likelihood of them staying together or not. So I think too that this may be indicative of a sign that it's it may be another way to assess for health in a relationship. Not that it might predict anything, but that in a sense that if you want to see like how's my relationship doing and you're riding all of these positive experiences, it may be indicative that you're in a pretty happy, healthy relationship. I, I think that's a really good takeaway. Just understanding that how we talk about our relationships are linked to how we feel about them, which kind of makes a whole lot of sense, but it's nice to get that tangible link there. So yeah, shout out to Rachel, who I haven't talked to in like 10 years, I think. So this is cool to read. Uh-huh. <laughs> shout out, Rachel. <laughs> That's the take home, you guys. Shout out to Rachel. Shout out to Rachel. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice about friends, families, and romantic partners. Did your parents or grandparents have a saying about love and marriage? Did you have a friend or romantic partner who said something about love and family that you thought was odd or maybe just struck you as poignant? Maybe you heard something about relationships in a movie or TV show that just made you think. This is the section of the show where we talk about that advice and say, based on science, mind you, if it was good or bad. bad. Homemade sound effects, y'all. High budget. (laughs) High budget, y'all. If you have been on the receiving end of some relationship advice that you'd like us to talk about, send it on in. You could leave us a message at 865-229-6775, email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com, or tweet us at attachedpodcast. You can also get at us on Instagram or Facebook, or you could just go to theattachedpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, while you're on those interwebs, please like and subscribe to the podcast and leave a message. Nope. And leave a comment and share it with your loved ones. So we know that sharing a podcast about healthy relationships could be kind of awkward. It's not. It's not. (laughs) So we've come up with an example scenario to help all of our listeners spread the good news. Jacob, in this one, I'd like for you to play brother, sister. Wow, I have to tell you something. Did you hear mom and dad last night? I think they were doing it. Brother. Whoa, 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 whoa. TMI. I don't need to share in your plane. Plus, this is gross. Sister. (laughs) Word. But, I mean, if they were, more power to them, you know? Brother. I mean, you bring up a really good point. I shouldn't be so judgmental. Sometimes talking about sex can be really difficult. But it shouldn't be. We should be happy that moms and dad, mom and dad are still close. This is really natural. Sister. Very natural. Sister. Um, that was like a complete 180. Brother. Well, I just remembered this excellent podcast, Attached. Said a few weeks ago about how it can be uncomfortable to talk about sex with your parents, but we have to learn to cope with that anxiety. They use the example of this Netflix show, Sex Education. You should check it out. Sister, wow, I really love that show. And this podcast you speak of, Attached? (laughs) It sounds great. Can I find it on iTunes, brother? Yes, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. (laughs) Scene. (laughs) So just a completely normal, natural conversation that you can have to help spread the word about Attached. Today's advice 
We talk about an article sent in by one of my wonderful students called Six Healthy Relationship Habits Most People Think Are Toxic by Mark Manson. So we're just, we're not gonna have time to go through all of them, but we're gonna go through a couple of them and of course a link will be on the episode description. So first, letting some conflicts go unresolved. So the first thing, this is, he bases this off of some of Gottman's research, which we've already referenced in, uh, our read today. The idea that couples must communicate and resolve all of their problems is a myth. In his research, him being Gottman, thousands of happily married couples, some of who have been married for 40 plus years, he repeatedly found that most successful couples have persistent unresolved issues, issues that they've sometimes been fighting about for decades. So because of that research, the advice is letting some conflicts go unresolved. Good or bad advice? So I'm gonna have to have a little bit of a caveat. So two things. Go First, I tried to read this guy's book once called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, and it just wasn't my writing style, and there was just a lot of things I was like, ooh, I don't, I don't know about this. Um, but the reason why I'm going to say, I mean, that aside, I tried not to how he talks about it. I mean, he refers to John Gottman as the Michael Jordan of relationship research, which, <laughs> yeah. um, anyway. But... Uh, I think he's missing a key component of Gottman's research is that you just don't let these conflicts go unresolved and fester and build tension. Right. It's about um, using those differences to support each other's dreams and to um, understand that though you are not this person, this is something that you could maybe support in a different way. So yeah, not, I mean, Gottman's going to say that 67% of all problems are unsolvable, but I think that the process of talking about these um, problems and... Understanding the individual difference, your individual differences as to why you have that difference, I think is what Gottman would say is most important. Exactly. So... Understandable reasons. For that reason, because he missed that important research, I'm going to say this is bad advice. Yeah. Okay. I think I would say it's good advice because I'm not sure it needs too much more explaining. I agree with Jacob that the idea or the most important piece about that is not solving the conflict or it, it's not an idea of just kind of letting things go that upset you and just always choosing to turn the other cheek. That's not effective either, but it's the process of how you talk about things that you disagree about that's most predictive of whether a relationship is functional or not. And going into those conversations, knowing that you are not necessarily going to convince your partner of your point of view and instead thinking about how you can talk with each other about that kind of conflict is really what's most important. And sometimes there are, I mean, I don't personally ascribe to this, but I think sometimes there is maybe some benefit to picking your battles. <laughs> I, I don't personally choose to leave any of them on the floor, but, um, <laughs> but for some people that could work. So good, good advice. advice. Yeah. Okay. So we have a, I would say that a 50-50, depending on the context and how you interpret it in your relationship. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Next being willing to hurt each other's feelings so this example kind of goes into telling his wife he doesn't like her outfit and she being upset about it so being open and honest with each other so i'm gonna say bad advice because it's not about being willing to hurt each other's feelings it's about willing to being open with each other 
right? And when I say that, I mean this ability to say and have difficult conversations. I don't think that, you know, if your wife has been getting ready for 30 minutes what she's using this and you just say, oh, that doesn't look great, that that's really not, maybe that's a difficult conversation, but I don't feel like that's as an important conversation about talking about past hurts in your relationship where you were really vulnerable and felt let down by your partner or where you have to be open and authentic about a disagreement, not in the sense to hurt the other person's feelings, but to be able to say, this is important to me and I want you to hear me out about this. When it talks about hurting each other's feelings, it almost talks about a level of rudeness or curseness that I don't think John Gottman would ascribe to, you know, he's going to talk about the 10 to 1 positive to negative ratio of when couples are just normally interacting that you want to have these positive interactions to the everyone negative and the 5 to 1 in conflict. So I think if you're aiming just to be like, oh, well, they said I could hurt my, my partner's feelings, so this is going to be a place where I'm doing, that just seems petty and vindictive, which isn't the yeah. foundation of a healthy relationship. Healthy relationship, yeah. yeah. So bad advice? Yes, bad advice. Okay. Yeah, I also say bad advice this is nonsense <laughs> honesty is not the same thing as right. hurting someone's feelings yeah. there are lots of times where you could be honest and never hurt anyone's feelings and if you haven't found a way to phrase it that will not try to remove some of that pain then I don't know uh, are you even trying to have a healthy relationship this is just permission to go balls to the wall whenever I want Whenever right. I want it. In this article that you're referring to, Patricia, he says the last person I should ever have to censor myself with is the woman I love. False. <laughs> uh, your job in being a good partner in any kind of relationship is to occasionally censor yourself. The whole world doesn't need to know all your thoughts and feelings all the yeah. time, and that includes your partner. There is feedback that you don't need to give and things you don't need to say, and sometimes we hurt each other's feelings. Yeah, and I would actually goal. say almost entirely your partner that's the person that in theory you're going to walk through life with and you're going to have the longest relationship with so i would think that that's a person you want to express things to in an honest way we're not talking about stifling your emotions but in a way that um, communicates your feelings but also protects their feelings in a way that helps that relationship stay healthy so bad advice all right, the last one we're going to do today is being willing to end it. Sometimes the only thing that can make a relationship successful is ending it at the necessary time before it becomes too damaging. Good or bad advice? So I'm going to say bad advice. And the reason why I'm going to say that is I think that there are toxic relationships or that you need to get out of. And there also uh, are times when you should break up with somebody if you've been dating with them. But to me, this seems like you're using it as a threat, that I'm going to be willing to end this, right? I mean, I don't think that's exactly what he's getting at, but it feels that way to me in the sense okay. of being willing to end it. Like, oh, well, if you're not going to do this, then we're going to get divorced. Yeah, you're right. The next line, it says, and the willingness to do that, to end it, allows us to establish the necessary boundaries to help ourselves and our partners grow so, together. So I like that, right? There needs to be a bottom line in a relationship, right? There needs to be right. something that if it happens, this is where I go, f I, I, I end the relationship. 
but I also don't think that it is something that should be used as a threat to try to manipulate people and to get them to do something. Well, if you don't do this, right, well, then I'm going to divorce you. What do you think about that? Right. So I think it should be a better way to say that is have a clear boundary and an understanding of what would be a deal breaker for you in a relationship. Maybe I'm parsing words here a little much, but I just kind of didn't like the way that he went about talking about it. So for me, bad advice. Yeah, I... I think I would say that the initial intent, as, as I understand you're describing it, Patricia, is that I would say it's good advice in terms of being willing to end a relationship can be important, that we view breakups and separations and divorces as sometimes failures and really that the end of a lot of relationships are not necessarily failures at all that that was healthy and that was a decision that made sense for one or both people and that they decided that that doesn't work and that their life was better or could move in a direction that was healthier without that person so i think the reverse of that are people who maybe are never willing to end a relationship ever for any reason and i think that can promote some really toxic behaviors in relationships so i i agree with what jacob is saying and i'm not sure exactly how this writer is intending this piece of advice I do agree with Jacob in terms of that ending a relationship is not the ultimate motivator of how to behave in a relationship and so that saying we are committed or saying that we are married for life is not the reason why we then can behave however we want to behave and the reverse of that is that knowing that we could walk away at any time is not what should be motivating us to treat each other kindly so it sounds like we're on the fence but in general ending relationships can be healthy and also using the threat of ending a relationship is unhealthy yes okay good one fantastic pr i give that i give that good advice oh mine oh well thank you yes (laughs) well thank you for listening to attached remember call us email us tweet us about any relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on we cannot wait to talk about it Attached Podcast is written by Patricia Robertson, Sarah Woods, and Jacob Priest. Sound editing by Kylie Hubbard and produced by Kylie Hubbard, Patricia Robertson, Sarah Woods, and Jacob Priest.